Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and the facey face, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. A quick programming note, if you're listening on March 22nd or a few days later, first, thank you very much. Secondly, there will be no new podcast next week. I'd always planned to do 40 episodes per season, so going forward there'll be one week per month where I'll be off to focus on other projects and recharge the batteries. I also need the time to actually watch the movies. So if you've missed an episode or have friends you think would be interested in the podcast, this is a good time to catch up on all the reviews, rants, and randomness. Now before we start, I wanted to talk about Script Doctors. I had mentioned it in passing on my last podcast, and I wanted to delve a little deeper. They're hired by the production for a lot of money to do uncredited rewrites of a screenplay. One of the most famous Hollywood Script Doctors was Carrie Fisher. Yes, Princess Leia. She had already established herself as a talented writer through her novels Postcards from the Edge, which she adapted into a screenplay, and Surrender the Ping. She was brought on to do rewrites of the screenplays for Hook, Sister Act, Lethal Weapon 3, The River Wild, and The Wedding Singer. I would have liked to have seen the script for Last Action Hero before her polish, because that was a rough movie. I have officially called myself an unofficial script doctor, which means I'm hired for no money to do uncredited rewrites of my friend's screenplays. I kind of have a knack for making other people's ideas better while struggling to finish my own scripts. My main focus is usually on formatting, then character. I try not to comment on the storyline because that's all subjective. I don't always like the stories I read, but that doesn't mean it's not a good premise that could sell and make a lot of money. I mean, there's a television show called Dr. Pimple Popper, so there's something for everyone. But if a screenplay isn't structured properly, a producer will see it as amateur and not give it the time of day. One of my friends asked if I could review his script for a TV pilot. I would estimate that it was about 85% of the way there, but I saw a few places where I could increase the drama, develop the characters and establish stronger motivations, and, of course, work on the formatting. He described the series to me as the OC on Long Island. Now, I hadn't seen that show before because it came out a little after my high school experience, and I was never big on those teen dramas anyway. I mean, Dawson's Creek. I don't want to wait for our lives to be over. Ugh. <laughs> but, you know, I, I felt it was my responsibility to be familiar with the series so I could accurately achieve the objectives and intentions of the writer. So that made my next review pretty easy. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars, watch at your own risk. Three stars, standard fare. Four stars, worth checking out. Five stars, must see. 
Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the pilot episode for The O.C. from 2003, about a troubled youth who's taken in by an affluent family and has to adjust to high society living in Orange County, California. It was created by Josh Schwartz, who has an extensive career in television. He co-developed the reboots of Dynasty and Nancy Drew. He also co-developed Gossip Girl, based off the book series, and Runaways from the comics. The pilot episode was directed by Doug Lyman. Prior to the series, he helmed Swingers, a great movie, and The Bourne Identity. He would go on to film Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Jumper, and The Edge of Tomorrow, amongst others. The episode starts off with the introduction of Ryan Atwood and his brother Trey. Ryan is played by Ben McKenzie, who would go on to star in Gotham. They're in the process of robbing a car and end up being pursued and captured by the police in what has to be the shortest chase in television history. Ryan is sent to Juvie, where he meets public defender Sandy Cohen. He's portrayed by Peter Gallagher, best known for While You Were Sleeping and American Beauty, though I was introduced to him through a PBS special on the 1992 Broadway revival of Guys and Dolls with Nathan Lane and Faith Prince. He was cast as Sky Masterson. Anyway, this is a clever little scene because there's a lot of plot exposition being given to the audience, but it's done through natural dialogue. It doesn't feel like a lecture. It's not being bashed over the viewers' heads, and it's important information to get out there. One of my favorite scenes of meta-plot exposition is in The Great Muppet Caper, where Lady Holiday is speaking with Miss Piggy and talking all about her brother. Finally, Miss Piggy says, Why are you telling me all of this? And Lady Holiday responds, It's plot exposition. It has to go somewhere. So we learn that Sandy relates to Ryan, both coming from similar troubled backgrounds. We meet Ryan's mother, who's disheveled, and get a glimpse into his private life. It's a bit of a stereotype. The mother is an alcoholic, and his stepfather and or her boyfriend is unpleasant. They get into a physical altercation, and Ryan leaves. He looks for places to crash for the night, and calls up Sandy out of desperation. He's brought back to the Cohen house, where his wife, Kristen, is apprehensive about him staying over. As Ryan waits outside, he meets the next-door neighbor, Marissa, played by Misha Barton. She invites him to a fashion show fundraiser. After the act break, we meet the Cohen's son, Seth. This part was made for Adam Brody, who appeared in The Ring, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Cop Out. He's playing video games and a bit of a geek. He comes across cocky, but there's an awkwardness about him. It's from the Jesse Eisenberg School of Acting. They all attend the aforementioned fashion show, where Marissa's boyfriend, Luke, notices flirtatious glances between her and Ryan. We're introduced to Summer. Not the season. It's a character name. She's portrayed by Rachel Bilson. She's the love interest of Seth, but has eyes for Ryan. Drama! At the after party, everything comes to a head. Luke bullies Seth and Ryan comes to his defense. It's revealed that he's from the wrong side of the tracks, which will be the theme of the series. I thought the pilot episode was pretty good. It got me hooked within the first few minutes with the car chase scene before slowing down to establish the characters. The acting is decent for a teen drama, and the characters of Ryan Atwood and Sandy Cohen are relatable for viewers whose families don't make six figures. I think they do a decent job of showing that even though these are affluent people, they have problems that can't be resolved with money and privilege. This includes the parents, whose storylines I didn't delve into, but you can tell bad things are brewing. I have continued to watch a few more episodes since my initial viewing. It's entertaining enough and an interesting watch, but it's not a series that I'm itching to see the next episode. 
it falls into that I'll get around to it category, whereas a series like Pretty Little Liars has similar themes but an underlying mystery, which makes you want to see the next episode right away. It's always fun watching a fish out of water. Not literally. I mean, that's horrific. The way the mouth and gills open and close. But watching someone get acclimated to a different environment always makes for good conflict. And there's a lot of hoity-toityness going around this series. For the first episode, there was a lot of drama and information thrown at the viewer, but none of it was too much. Each of the main characters are established enough to know who they are, which can be expanded upon in future episodes. It's a very pretty show to watch. You could almost feel the Santa Ana winds and the smell of the Pacific Ocean. The houses are upscale with exquisite views, the clothing is designer, the cars are luxury, and the people are flawless. Doug Lyman captured all of these elements adequately. The theme song was California by Phantom Planet, whose membership consisted of actor Jason Schwartzman on drums. The soundtrack is comprised of interchangeable rock bands from the aughts, whose lead singers always sounded like they inhaled helium, though they did showcase mainstream artists as well. The incidental music was composed by Christopher Ting, whose work includes Suits, Covert Affairs, Rescue Me, and the movie Kazam, because someone had to do it, and Richard Marvin, whose credits include Grimm, Six Feet Under, U571, and Surrogates. The OC ran on Fox from 2003 to 2007, with 92 episodes total. Ultimately, the pilot comes down to Bad Boys, Big Wheels, Sailing, Rich People Problems, On the Catwalk, White Privilege, Hang Ten, and Welcome to the Dark Side. I give the pilot episode 3.5 out of 5 stars. Episode 2 got the same ranking. Add half a star if you're under the age of 30. If you've seen the OC and have opinions on the series, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called MattWatchThat Playback. As someone who writes music, there have been many nights that I've woken up with a song in my head and quickly grabbed my voice recorder, only to discover when I listened back to it the next morning, it sounds suspiciously like Aerosmith's Love in an Elevator. Kiss on an escalator! It happens to the best of us. With a finite amount of chords, there are only so many progressions you can go through. Not everyone can be as creative as Tori Amos. Over the years, many bands have been brought to trial for songs that sound too much alike. Some famous cases include Madonna with Papa Don't Preach versus Sam Harris, Sugar Don't Bite, George Harrison, My Sweet Lord versus The Chiffons, He's So Fine, Johnny Cash with Folsom Prison Blues versus Gordon Jenkins with Crescent City Blues, Ray Parker Jr. with Ghostbusters versus Huey Lewis and the News with I Want a New Drug, In most instances, a settlement is reached, and on occasion, co-writing credit is given. My favorite case is when John Fogarty was sued for sounding too much like... John Fogarty! Let me explain. No, no. There's too much. Let me sum up. Credence Clearwater Revival was signed to Fantasy Records, but when John Fogarty went solo, he signed to the Warner Brothers label. When he had a huge hit with the single Center Field, the owner of Fantasy Records sued John Fogarty, claiming that he had plagiarized Creedence Clearwater Revival, which he was the main songwriter. They went to court, and he deconstructed the songs to show why they were different. The court agreed, saying that some artists have a signature sound. I'll post two videos around this subject. 
The first is entitled Similar Songs Part 1, which plays songs that sound the same back-to-back and, on many occasions, they sound strikingly familiar. Others have comparable foundations, but feel different enough. The second is when you accidentally write songs that already exist. It was created by actor and musician Daniel Thrasher. He's an amazing pianist, and I'm uber jealous of people who can easily move around the instrument with ease. I compose most of my music on keyboard and play by ear, so it takes a lot of fumbling around for me to find the right progressions. It can be frustrating. Anyway, he reminds me a bit of a modern-day Victor Borga, combining comedy and music which elevates and respects both mediums, but he has a long way to go before I dub him a successor to the Clown Prince of Denmark. He's off to a good start, though. They're all available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yep, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Gotham. I rarely watch broadcast television, but this was appointment viewing for me. I mean, I am a huge Batman fan. It's a crime drama featuring Detective James Gordon, future commissioner of the Gotham Police Department, who is assigned to investigate the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne with his partner Harvey Bullock. Yes, the first episode revisits Bruce Wayne witnessing his parents' death, but that occurrence sets off the events of the show. I remember the initial responses to the series, Who's gonna watch a show about Jim Gordon? More recently, people were saying the same thing about Pennyworth. Who's gonna watch a show about Batman's butler? How about a lot of people? Creatives can find an interesting angle on supporting characters. And speaking of, both series were developed by Bruno Heller, who was responsible for the creation of Rome and The Mentalist, and executive produced by Danny Cannon. The first season was comprised mostly of Criminal of the Week episodes, and your favorite rogues gallery makes an appearance, though not all of them have reached their villainous potential. It's fun watching the characters you know and love develop through the series, along with some new additions. The character of Fish Mooney was created specifically for the show and portrayed by Jada Pinkett Smith. Robin Lord Taylor is a standout as Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. the Penguin. Cameron B. Condova has a striking resemblance to Michelle Pfeiffer and perfectly cast as Selena Kyle, also known as Catwoman, if you couldn't tell. Corey Michael Smith has one of the biggest transformations from Edward Nigma to the Riddler. Sean Pertwee portrays the steadfast butler, Alfred Pennyworth. David Mazouz, as young Bruce Wayne, gives some insight into his internal conflicts. Donald Logue brings some levity to the show as Harvey Bullock, the not-so-ethical partner of James Gordon, who's played by Ben McKenzie. He's grown as an actor since his time on the OC and has mastered the angry, clenched jaw. The series was filmed at Steiner Studios in Brooklyn and shot mostly in and around New York. The Webb Institute on Long Island served as Wayne Manor, not for the first time. The cinematography is incredible. It really gives off this film noir vibe. It's rare that you see the sunshine. There's a timeless quality to the series. They use cell phones from the 90s, but some of the clothing has a 50s style. And the score, at times it feels vaudevillian. The sets are astounding. It's a very adult take on a comic book world. After all, it is DC. Now, if you're a Batman purist, the series does play with the lore a little bit, but don't let that take away from the enjoyment of an otherwise excellent show. Gotham was on for five seasons, 100 episodes, from 2014 to 2019. 
That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, that makes absolutely no sense, but yes, we should go. In most instances, a settlement is reached, and on occasion, co 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 wo Now, I hadn't ever seen the show before because it came out a little pafter, a little pafter. But that occurrence sets off the time events of the time um, of the time. <laughs> he also co-developed Gorgum, that very popular show, Gorgum. <laughs> In most instances, a settlement is reached, and on occasion, co-written Reddit credit is grid. <laughs> this is rough. <laughs>